Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkwood. I've been interviewing fascinating people across all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to remarkable and talented people from a variety of fields. And of course, I'll share some of the inside stories from your favorite reality TV series, documentaries, and game shows. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Her work has been broadcast and showcased internationally, including at Sundance, South by Southwest, Tribeca, Hot Docs, New York Times, Op Docs, Field of Vision, and PBS POV. Her debut feature... Stray won the top jury prize at Hot Docs and was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award, a Critics' Choice Award, and two Cinema Eye honors after premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2020. Please welcome Elizabeth Lowe. Elizabeth, how are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I watched Stray. It's amazing. And, you know, you filmed for two years across Turkey. It's your debut feature doc. You're following dogs across Turkey. My first question is, why would you pick this topic, a very niche topic, for your first feature doc? (laughs) I think it's because it's my first feature doc that I didn't think too much about it. Uh, And I was naive going into it that I thought I could make this grand film about dogs uh, that led me to it's it's not thinking and not calculating that led me to this this idea that feels very pure and authentic to what I care about and what I would want to see as an audience member in theaters. Tell the audience a little bit about uh, Stray. Um, obviously, it's about stray dogs and um, how you went about making it. Yeah, I think that when people hear that it's about stray dogs, they tend to think this is going to be a tragic story of of dogs who are surviving on the streets and abandoned and and not living with love. But the film, I hope in the end, comes across as a celebration of stray animal life. The film follows uh, Zaytan, this one stray dog in Turkey who has so much charisma um, and was so independent and able to sort of tolerate my presence in her life, filming her every step and every move through the city. Um, She really takes us on this journey where she's living life on her own terms, you know, without an owner, kind of communally cared for by all the different people that she meets. And she's providing warmth to all the people who are surviving on the streets with her. The film follows her as she cuts across sort of gender, ethnic and class lines throughout Istanbul. And through that, you kind of eavesdrop on different conversations that she happens upon, um, whether they're conversations about people's love lives or politics. And you get a sense of kind of what 
what Turkey is going through at the time that I'm filming and, and by extension, the world uh, because they're facing so many issues. But at the same time, the film truly is this meditation on dog life. And, you know, it doesn't try to explain what the motivations of Zayton, this dog is as she moves through the world, but it's just asking audiences to carefully observe her and carefully observe the micro dramas that unfold in her life and, and hopefully sort of allows us to step outside of our human centric worldview for, for a little bit. I was struck by a number of things. Uh, you know, one of the things is, is you're almost kind of, you're following along with Zayton, but you're worried like, okay, how is Zayton going to live? How, how are humans going to react? And you're struck by the Turks the way they treat strays very lovingly. Tell me a little bit about how you reacted to seeing the way the Turks treated these stray dogs. I was awestruck. Um, I was so impressed by a civilization that was able to respect the rights and the agency of, of sort of non-human life in a way that I was so not used to coming from um, the States or Hong Kong, where I grew up. It was incredible to behold people sort of tolerating dogs, sometimes dog mobs being nuisances um, that people you know, would either try to break up the dog fights that would occur on the streets or would just tolerate it. And to me, it's remarkable that even when the dogs were inconveniences to people, um, people would step in to try to make their lives better, whether it was like, you know, forcing stray dogs to share a bone um, or, or just breaking up a fight with a water hose. I was really amazed. And I think I came originally from this place that a lot of people come to when they think of stray animals is that cities that have huge stray dog populations are somehow inhumane or not taking care of their animals. But what I found over the course of making this film and, and watching the way Turks communally cared for all the stray dogs in the streets and, and they don't kill them and they don't you know, incarcerate them as we do in the States. I realized it actually, it's the fact that our streets are errat our streets are emptied of dogs, that that's a sign that we're intolerant of, of other species living life on their own terms, unless there are pets. And so it's a real reversal of, of what I thought was humane and not humane. And, and what I found is that Turkey's model and how it allows dogs to be integrated into their urban fabric and where there are laws protecting their right to life and their right to sort of a pursuit of happiness uh, is extended to dogs. And that was kind of amazing to me. And I really wanted to capture that to show people outside of, outside of Turkey that there's another way possible that dogs don't have to languish in cells that they can survive on our margins. And if we only gave them the chance, they can figure out traffic and they can figure out food because that's what they're sort of genetically born to do, to live with us and among us. I went in not really knowing what to expect, almost kind of preparing myself for a sad story. And it's not that at all. What yeah. did you go in as you, you know, in 2017, as you go in, with a camera, did you go in with a goal in mind or not? Did you go in not really knowing what to expect? 
I went in not knowing what to expect. I think originally when I thought of the idea of following a stray dog, that it would, that the narrative would somehow be about what's it like to live in a world without love or status or security. But what I found was the opposite, that stray dogs somehow in this universe that they find themselves in, like a parallel society to ours, is they find love on their own terms and it can be transient. They find friendship with other dogs, other people who care for them, but who aren't you know, accountable to them in the way that sort of owners are to their pets in the West. And yeah, I, I don't know, it was just so foreign to me. I loved it. And I, the moment I left Turkey after you know, these years of filming and went back to LA, I felt starved of being able to interact with dogs and being able to make friends with dogs who are so well socialized as street dogs because they survived by knowing people's boundaries and knowing how to read what was acceptable behavior and what not um, in a way that I think a lot of pet dogs are lacking in. It was so eye-opening and it was such a privilege to stumble upon a culture that somehow, like a miracle, slipped through the cracks of, you know, modern industrialized uh, cities and have developed economically and yet still managed to preserve this, what I think of as a sacred relationship between dogs and people. Americans have this love affair with dogs, but to your point, it is very specific. It is very, you know, this is my dog. It's in my house. You know, you have to, you know, like it's very particular. How do you compare the attitude that Turks have with dogs to what, you know, we have here in America? I mean, I think when we think of our relationship to dogs in America, we think of the intensity of love that we have for our pets, which I fully respect because I am that way too. But I think what we mostly tend to forget is the huge amount of death behind this pet industry and, and, and darkness. Um, fueling it and all the and the fact that the only way you can survive as a dog in America is if you happen to have an owner and if you're born with the DNA of a dog and you happen to be in a public space in New York or LA you will be persecuted policed and incarcerated and then if nobody adopts you in the end you'll probably be destroyed just simply by virtue of being of the dog species which is an insane idea and that's actually our relationship with dogs, I think. As much as we love our pets, we turn our backs on, on all dogs that don't happen to have owners. And we define our relationships to dogs and, and the rights of dogs to exist as purely based on one of ownership, which is really insane. And so I think the Turks, there are people who have pets there too and who love their animals, um, but simultaneous to that love for their own pets, they have the capacity to imagine that even if you don't have an owner, that you still have the right to exist and to exist freely, which shouldn't be that much of an ask, but, but for some reason we've reframed our idea of what it means to be a dog to solely be this very narrow definition of, of one, which is that of a pet rather than I that of a free agent. I, I should clarify for the audience, what is the law in Turkey regarding these stray dogs? So actually for a hundred years, the governments 
um, in Turkey have tried to implement programs to eradicate stray dogs from the streets, to get rid of them. And it was all in this attempt to conform Istanbul to the standards of Western cities where you, know, you don't have stray animals around uh, because that was considered more quote unquote civilized. But people, Turkish people had such a deep relationship with stray dogs um, that, date, that, that dates back to the Ottoman times that they protested against these mass killings of dogs. Um, and in 2004, they successfully passed these laws that prevent anyone from killing, including the government, from killing stray dogs or euthanizing them if they're healthy. And also you can't even hold any healthy stray dog in captivity if they're able-bodied. And even more radical is when the government, because the, there is a spay and neuter program and there is a vaccination program for dogs that when the government picks them up to be vaccinated, they have to return them to where they pick them up with a tag on their ear, you know, saying that they've been vaccinated. But that is such a profound level of respect that, you know, even if these animals don't have deeds to the land or territory or street corner that they hang out in, that by law, it's respected that this is where they've claimed their home as. And of course, this is not always put into practice. Sometimes animals are taken away from a street corner, they're vaccinated, and then they're dumped in nearby forests where there are hundreds of dogs, but at least it's in the law, which imagine passing that those laws in America, it would be near impossible. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it actually, it, it makes me think, so you get there, I mean, and we, we talk about casting here, you know, you had to cast a dog. You know, I mean, you had cast your main character or characters. How did you go about picking the dog to follow? I think it was almost just sort of chance because a lot of dogs that we did try to cast in the film, either, you know, maybe sometimes their lives wouldn't be that interesting or their, their territory range was not that wide enough to carry a film. Um, or they inadvertently would bond with our crew, which was usually just me and one other person who um, would be our, my co-producer recording sound. They would end up following us back at the end of the day or only following us around instead of us following them. And so it emerged that Zayton was the only, one of the only dogs that we met throughout Turkey um, and Istanbul, who was so stubborn for whatever reason and independent that she didn't care where I had to go. And we couldn't bribe her with food even when we tried in the early days because she was so successful at finding her own food that she fulfilled the promise of the film, which was to let a dog, a dog's will lead us instead of having me impose my desires as a filmmaker or as a storyteller or my biases about what's important in the world. But she would lead us throughout the city to the most unexpected places. Um, and, and, and yeah, really allow me to surrender my, myself to her will because she had such a strong one. And so that's how she emerged as the star. In a way, I guess it feels like she chose the film because she also tolerated us. She was able to stare past the barrel of my lens, um, even if I was inches past her, 
you know, next to her face in the way that most dogs would react a lot right. if I was so yeah. close to their faces. But she somehow just had this star quality where she was unselfconscious in front of the camera. A Hollywood dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I've only shot with dogs once and it was one of the toughest days of my career. Um, really? Were there days you were frustrated and, and going, God, we're not, we're not getting anything. Totally. Of course. And especially in the early days when we were just testing out the idea for this film, which was, let's see what the lives of stray dogs are like. And there were times when, you know, they, the dogs wouldn't get up to do anything. They, they would just sleep and sleep and sleep because it was hot. Um, and I would think, oh my God, is there a film here even? Like, do stray dogs even do anything? But of course, with patience, you know, the dogs would wake up at 5 p.m. or something. And then, you know, once they're up and they've, you know, recharged their energy, they're off and running to whatever sounds and smells uh, sort of intrigue them. And even though I wouldn't be so aware of what was driving them forward through the city, I would just have to keep up. And, and there were times, of course, when it was pretty uh, strenuous because the cinematography is trying to embody the bodies of dogs as closely as possible. So I was always hunched very low to the ground as I was following them with my stabilizer camera. And so it was quite painful. And there were times when I would wonder like, what are we doing with, with our lives? I would ask sort of Zainab, <laughs> my co-producer, Jaylan, like, I hope this is worth it. But I'm very glad to say that I feel like the film has been worth it that it's kind of reaffirms this belief I have that if you look closely enough at anyone, at any phenomenon in the world, it'll be, life will reveal itself to be really rich. Even if this story and this film doesn't sort of conform to standard storytelling plot beats. Well, let's talk about that style and the storytelling because it is unique. Storytelling, there's no sound bites, no interviews. Uh, no narration, which again, I was not, I didn't know. I, that was the last thing that I expected. I expected sound bites and some narration. Was that something you went in with that plan or was it something as you got into post-production that you made that decision? I always knew that the film would not have narration or interviews because I didn't want humans to speak for the dogs or explain away their behavior. I think a big part of this film is preserving the mystery of the other, in this case, the dog, um, and, and asking us to respect their agency and respect our boundaries of, of not being able to ever really know what Zayton is thinking or feeling or what, you know, what her intentions are when she, you know, wanders into traffic and sits right in the middle of it. That was really important for the spirit of the film to not be presumptuous and not to prescribe meaning onto things that I have no idea about because I'm not a dog. Um, and I guess that came from a point of humility. And, and I also think I always knew that, I knew that it would be tough to ask audiences to sit through an entire film, just, you know, looking at a dog. And so when I conceived of the film, I, I always imagined that it would be about a dog wandering through different parts of the city and really diverse parts of the city, whether it's really posh cafes or, or you know, derelict ruins that, that they would eavesdrop on, on bits of human conversation and that those conversations 
would not only function as sort of being windows into the world around the dogs, yeah. but also narratively function almost like treats or cutaways for human audiences who are hungering for dialogue, hungering for drama in the conventional sense. And you're, you're given tidbits of it, but then you're just as quickly sort of steered away from it by the dog who is you know, not the least bit concerned about you know, these women's love lives falling apart or, or the political situation in, in Turkey. <laughs> Yeah, the, the little tidbits of dialogue did help. Uh, it helped actually tell you about the attitudes of the people towards dogs. You know, yeah, it gave you a little window into the lives of, the, you know, the, the, the culture of yeah. the people. And then also, yeah, like how they treat the animals. So I did, I did appreciate those. Yeah, uh, yeah. And th- let's talk about the camera, the camera work. Like you were saying, you were definitely, there were moments I could tell you were hunched over. There was a lot of the POV work because you wanted the audience to feel like it really was. You were right there with Zayton. Tell me a little bit about how hard that was, how long you were shooting each day, what went into uh, you know the, the filmmaking, the cinematography. Yeah, so because none of this was orchestrated or planned or pre-produced, because it was truly, you know, our days were left up to wherever Zayton wanted to take us. Um, we knew, and because, you know, the events that happen to a stray dog or, or whatever conversations that the dog Zayton eavesdrop on are unpredictable, we had to film as much as possible. Every moment was precious, even if so many of those hours was, was nothing happening. And so we were lucky enough to get two grants for camera equipment, one from Rooftop Films, and then another one from Ari Alexa, the, the camera company that is often used on Hollywood film sets. And, and we would go out with two cameras, one after the other, we would shoot for eight hours on one camera and then exhaust the cards and, and batteries on that one. And then I'd go back and pick up the next camera and come out and film for another, you know, five or six. Wow. Because, because it was just, every moment felt unpredictable, rich, and I just yeah. didn't want to miss any of it because you can't you know, replicate any of this. And so we would film for many, many hours each day. And then in total, for the 72 minute film, it sounds uh, incredulous, but but we filmed 500 hours and oh. out of that carved 72 minutes. And yeah, I guess that was the process. It just required a lot of patience. And it was also important for us to use camera equipment that was at the level of Aerie or, or these vintage Cook lenses that I got through this grant because I wanted the experience to be beautiful and seductive enough that people would give these dogs a chance, like give these non-human heroines who don't speak and who the film has very intentionally chosen not to speak for, um, that, that the imagery had to match the gravity of what I saw in sort of the dog's souls and, and trying to visually help audiences give these subjects the benefit of the doubt that, hey, they may not be saying anything to you and they, their lives may appear meandering, but there's something here if you look closely and, and that they have really rich inner lives that are unimaginable to us, but, but here she is staring into the camera, inviting you to, to wonder about her, her sentience. You've won several awards uh, for Stray. What has been the response? What have people been telling you? What do people like? What are you hearing about the film? 
I think the one, the response that has struck me the most and has meant so much to me is Michael Moore wrote a letter about the film because he's curated the film as part of his Traverse City Film Festival in Michigan. And he wrote that he was never a dog person um, prior to watching this film and was very wary of dogs. But by the end of watching Stray, he not only became a dog person, he wanted to become a dog. And to oh, me, oh. making somebody, you know, shift their consciousness about dogs, an entire species, uh, that's so rewarding because that's what you make films for. It's to try to shift people's minds a little bit um, in whatever direction. Um, and, and to think that, that I've, you know, made a dog person out of, out of someone like Michael Moore who maybe didn't like dogs before, uh, like that's, that's what you hope a film does. You know, expand the empathy of somebody for a whole subgroup of beings. And that's I think, of course, dog lovers, you know, respond very well to this film. Yeah, that, yeah that's pretty but, incredible. But a non-dog person responding to this film has meant a lot, too. And it's Michael Moore. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah it's, it's not just, you know, the average Joe on the street. And so this is your, your first featured doc. Are there, you know, who, what other documentary filmmakers are you inspired by? I guess I would say Michael Glauiger is one. He makes these around the world documentaries that are highly visual and, and immersive, sort of cultural comparisons of different phenomenons around the world. And I had actually originally conceived of this film as a stray dogs around the world, sort of a cultural comparison to see what similarities and what contrasts there are in how different cultures regard a single species. And my intention with that original idea was, was, was to sort of reveal how arbitrary the value that we, we place on certain species is. So he was, he was definitely in my mind before it you know, became a more character-driven film around Zayton. Um, and then Viktor Kosakovsky is another incredible documentary filmmaker whose work I've known for a long time. And actually this year he released, he's releasing this film called Gunda, um, which is about a pig on a farm, a black and white film, just about a pig on a farm with no dialogue at all and completely immerses you with the most astounding cinematography I've ever seen. Um, in this pig's life and asks you to consider, you know, what are we doing to all the pigs and farm animals in the world without showing a drop of blood. Wow. Um, and that, you know, that's one of the, he's one of the filmmakers that I've, that floats around in my mind as a documentarian. And of course, like Frederick Weissman, who has made, you know, tens and tens of films that take this observational approach to dissect society and its hierarchies. I mean, I think over my lifetime, I would want to dedicate myself to making films that push this boundary um, between what we think of as the human and the non-human, because I think human-centric, you know, anthropocentrism is so destructive and toxic to our planet and causes so much pain and suffering around the world. And it's so limiting too, is like we're blind to the beauty of, of every other species that's out there. But, but I don't think I'll only make films about animals. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I tend to feel like the style that one adopts as a filmmaker happens naturally and you can't really force it. 
like I don't think I had like a theoretical, real theoretical idea against interviews or or any more expository forms of filmmaking. It's just I don't enjoy that mode as much. And maybe that's why I do what I do. But I do hope to push myself in in because I, I I feel like Stray is a little bit of a weird film sometimes when I watch it <laughs> over with audiences. I'm like, oh my God, like what is this film? It's kind of weird. It's pretty quiet. It doesn't have much dialogue. And 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 you know, is it able to reach? I want to reach more people with my filmmaking. So those are things that I, I do think about, although I'd have no idea. I feel like you you are what you are as a filmmaker and, and you can try to fight it, but <laughs> probably you can't fight it that much if you're not a super calculating um disciplined person. <laughs> It feels like for me right now, it's a great time to be a documentary filmmaker, that there are more great docs and doc series than ever before. Are you excited about the future of docs and, and docu-series? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot <laughs> of the docs- You seem hesitant. <laughs> because I feel like this golden era of docs and doc series that that is spoken about, a lot of it, feels like just exists in the space where it's just entertainment, like popcorn films, essentially, that are okay. just, um, and I enjoy them a lot too, but I don't know whether I'm excited by them as a form. Can you be yeah. specific? Because I think I know what you're talking about. But yeah. Are I don't you talk, wanna... Like you're, you're talking about like a Tiger King, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. No, and, and I... Th- I agree with you that, and I've noticed that too, like some of the true crime, like the Cecil Hotel, um, right? Is, is that kind of the, the more commercial? I don't know if that's the right I think word. so. I think so. But I don't think there's anything wrong with commercial uh, storytelling. Um, but it's just sometimes I, I, I feel like sometimes there are documentaries that, you know, could be better. I mean, would be equally as good as an article. Or like the documentary is just a visual sort of a visual and oral retelling of and what could have easily been an article. And to me, that's not fully utilizing the potential of, of cinema, which is to exist in a way that that's trying to function in a language beyond just words, because then why not just write an article about it or a book about it? But, but of course, I too watched all of Tiger King <laughs> and I too will you know, binge through all of these different series that are really gripping and really well made. Yeah. Um, but they, they don't necessarily excite me on a formal level. Uh, yes, I agree I, that, that I had to follow up. So there's three GameStop documentaries <laughs> coming out. Is, is that like a symptom of what you're talking about in the... It's like no one is going to watch, or I, I don't think anyone is going to watch three documentaries on game on the GameStop saga. You know, is that a symptom of okay? There's a zillion streamers. Everybody needs to know. You know, they're all hungry for content, so every, they're all going to buy a GameStop story, and then it's it's just a race to see who gets there first. But but the to your point about maybe it should just be an article doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be as good as it could be. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a world and there's a space and obviously there's an appetite for these kinds of films, otherwise they wouldn't be getting made. But I do fear for other types of nonfiction films that maybe are quieter, less sensational, that don't conform to whatever algorithmic <laughs> equations <laughs> that you know these streamers are using to define what's worthy and what's not of being broadcast. And I, and I am afraid in this age of streaming that films like even like Stray, where you know I feel so fortunate that Magnolia Pictures has come on as our, what would have been a theatrical distributor. You know, if everything is left up to the streamers, films like Stray, probably there would be no market for it if cinema culture, you know, dies because it's the kind of film that in the ideal world, you know, requires and thrives in a in a dark space where people yeah. come together to watch watch films. Right. And maybe it sounds kind of backwards of me to still be hanging on to that. But I really believe that if 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 we move totally into this streaming world, the types of films and stories we see are gonna be really different. I'm still looking forward to, you know, in a couple months, maybe. Hopefully, even sooner than that, going back into the theater and seeing. Yeah, so I think it's that, so important. What advice do you have for aspiring uh, documentary filmmakers? I guess I had a lot of, there were a lot of times in the making of Stray where I doubted whether, I had a lot of doubt about whether this should be a feature and whether I should continue making it. Interesting. Because people were not so interested in it in the funding and pitching stage because it was, you know, it's quite a strange idea. and. It's not a safe idea because we don't know how the film is gonna unfold. But I'm really glad that I pursued it anyway because it appealed to me. And if it and it, and and so far it feels like it's found some kind of audience that it's yeah. resonated with some people. And so I think whatever idea deeply appeals to you, that there you can try to have faith that there's probably other people who it will appeal to, too, even in the face of many no's. When you had those doubts that people might not be interested, what did you do to reassure yourself that one, I got to keep pushing forward? I think one big thing I learned in, in trying to let go of this idea of being self-conscious about what you make is, I remember I had some of these disastrous uh, test screenings of the film when we were still cutting it and we hadn't sort of figured out the beats of the film quite yet and we're taking on all this advice from different people about what the film should be how it should be told and trying to incorporate all of it and it felt like the film was failing after years of shooting it and and I remember it was my partner who said to me if you're gonna if this film is gonna be a failure at least let it fail on your own terms and not on other people's terms and that's when I decided to sort of shut everyone out of the edit room and just edit it to what I believed was the best possible version of this film and not care about pleasing everyone and, and be being accepting that if this was a failure, then, then, then at least I had, I can learn from it and learn from my own mistakes because all the mistakes would have been mine instead of other people's and there would be no one else to blame. And to me, that was a very valuable lesson. That is, I think that's fantastic advice for yeah. people in a wide, whether you're doing a scripted, your first scripted project or, you know, 
a lot of my audience is in the, you know, doing unscripted projects that might not be documentary, but reality TV, whatever. I think that's fantastic advice. All right. Can you tell everybody where they can find Stray? Because I want everybody to, to watch it. Yeah, it's playing in virtual cinemas across the country and is also available on all the major sort of rental video on demand platforms like YouTube, Google Play, iTunes, Amazon Prime or Amazon. And if you go to www.straymovie.com, that's where all the virtual cinemas are. And then also something we're trying to do in a social media campaign is because we've seen how dogs, pet dogs react to seeing street dogs on, you know, on TVs. And because people are watching this film at home, we're asking people to tag us at Stray Dog Film when their dog is watching the film. And, okay. And, and to add the hashtag Stray Watch Party um, because <laughs> it's been great to see the way dogs are so engaged with the dogs on screen. And it's just so fun <laughs> to, for me to watch since I haven't you know, experienced the film with an audience because of the pandemic. It's a nice sort of virtual treat. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that. Okay, very cool. I, I'm gonna definitely spread the word. Everybody should see Stray because it's, it's phenomenal. Elizabeth, thank you so much for the time. I know you're super busy. So, uh, you know, whenever you got your next project lined up, definitely come back on the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. This was a great conversation. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. For everyone listening, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you have questions, email them to noscriptnoproblempodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe, that's B-L-E-A-V, at Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.